Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. This morning's message may just be the most offensive sermon I've ever preached. I'm not bragging about that, nor do I enjoy saying that to open up a sermon. It's not like I want to preach messages like this. I want to be liked just like anybody else. But I'm admitting at the start that this tier one doctrine, and if you haven't been with us, we've been in a series that we will conclude next Sunday on tier one or the most important doctrines of our faith that must be believed in order to be an orthodox Christian. And I'm simply acknowledging at the start that this particular tier one doctrine that we're talking about today is not a popular one. Certainly not in our culture, and increasingly not even in the evangelical church. In fact, what I'll be talking about this morning would be labeled by many as bigoted, arrogant, or even hate speech that needs to be censored and even punished. Now, so far in this series, you may have agreed with virtually everything I've had to say, or at least you've acknowledged that you can see where it comes from the Bible. Whether you like it or not, you can see that it comes from the Scriptures, and therefore you followed along. But you may leave today with a raised eyebrow or a nagging thought in your mind that you either don't agree, you don't like it, or you just can't accept it. This will indeed be a test of your belief in the authority of Scripture. We began this series by talking about that very topic under the title, Has God Said? And all along we've been reminded of that because everything we've talked about has come out of the Bible. And so we've said it is not our right to pick and choose what we find here because if we do, we are placing ourselves in authority over the Scriptures rather than the other way around. And so today you are going to need to apply that truth. The general thought goes something like this. Everything you've said in this series on doctrines that defined is great if it's helping you. If it is improving your standard of living and if it is helping you along through life's troubles, then that is wonderful and good for you. Live accordingly. But surely we must also accept the truth that there are other truths that there are other gods, and that there are many paths to God by whatever name you choose to call him. You were raised a Christian, and as a result, you are following the Christian life. But surely you must acknowledge that there are others who were raised in other faith traditions or with no faith in God at all. And they too can come to know God by whatever name they call him, and by whatever path they choose. After all, we are all children of God, doing the best we can to know him, and following the path that we've been taught, and in the end, we'll all wind up in the same place. That is the prevailing thought in our no-truth, all-inclusive world in which we live. 
a world of situational truths that change from place to place and person to person, where what might work for you may not work for me and vice versa, and how dare you tell me how to live my life, that's my path to choose. Every opinion is valid, every opinion is welcomed, except for the opinion that I'm going to share this morning, and I hope you understand it is not my opinion at all, it is the very Word of God. We want options. We demand options. The more, the merrier. Sonic boasts over one million choices of drinks. Can you believe that? One million plus options on various drinks at Sonic. I don't even know how that's possible. When we go to the grocery store, we want 20 cans of green beans and some fresh ones as well. Because we want to choose, we want to be in control, and that goes for everything else on the shelf. If we go into a grocery store that only has one option, we are soon to find a new grocery store. We want to get exactly what we want, and we want to do the choosing. And so we carry this mindset over into the realm of religion, especially in this world of technology and travel, where the world has become smaller and therefore it is all inclusive. That's the key word. Everyone must be included. Exclusion is not acceptable, and most people would say it much harsher than that. Exclusion simply will not be tolerated. Last week we looked at the idea that we are made right with God through faith in Christ. And so today we ask the question, are there options? Are there other ways to God? Do I have other possibilities? Or is it just faith in Christ? Again, we live in an age where all paths are equally valid and equally true, or so we are told. But let's hear what Jesus has to say about that. John chapter 14 is our text this morning, the first seven verses, John chapter 14. Some of these verses will probably be familiar to you. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, or the King James says mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, I trust you already see the biblical answer to this question. Are there options? And the biblical and clear answer from Jesus himself is, there are no other options. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I want to spend our time this morning sharing with you several reasons why this is the truth. First of all, there are no other options because Jesus is right By that I mean that he claimed to be the only way, not only here, but also elsewhere, and he is right in that claim. 
As I said, we talked several times in this series about the authority or sufficiency of Scripture. How God has spoken, and when God has spoken, that is to be accepted as authoritative. And if we choose not to do that, then we are the ones who are in authority, picking and choosing what we like and do not like, what we are willing to believe and what we don't want to believe. And therefore, we have become the authority over the Bible itself. We've also talked about the fact that Jesus claimed to be God, that he claimed to be the Messiah, that he taught in a way that pointed to that, that he lived in a way that pointed to that, and he pr proved that by many miraculous signs and wonders. And if he is then not who he claimed to be, then he is not a good man, he is not a great teacher, he is a liar, pure and simple. Those were our only options. We use the C.S. Lewis quote, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord, because he claimed to be God. Now, the passage we are looking at this morning comes on the heels of some major news that Jesus has just shared with his disciples. In chapter 13 of John's gospel, he has predicted his death. He has predicted Peter's betrayal as well. And he has also told them that he is going to be leaving them and at least in the present, they are not going to be able to follow him, though they will be able to later. So they are understandably troubled and filled with anxiety. For three years or so, they have been following Jesus with their own expectations of what he was going to do. And that expectation was not that he was going to leave them and they would be unable to follow so they are filled with anxiety, which is why this text opens with those famous words, let not your hearts be troubled. They had expected Jesus not to leave, but they had expected Jesus to establish his kingdom with them being primary leaders within that kingdom. So now to relieve their anxiety, Jesus gives them these tremendously reassuring words. Words that, we'll find, that we will find comforting, at least until we get to verse 6. In these first five verses, we have the promise that Jesus is preparing a place for us. We have the promise that he is going to come back to take us to that place. It's a logical argument. If I am going to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to be with me in that place. And I still use these verses many times at funerals to give comfort to the families in the present because of the future promises of God, promises that we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about the return of Christ. But our focus this morning is not on these wonderful truths, but on the statement that follows. Thomas, the one we know as Doubting Thomas, once again plays a pivotal role in the dialogue, asking a rather obvious question that was no doubt on the minds of the other disciples as well. He says to Jesus, you said you are leaving. You said that we cannot follow you now, but that we do know the way to where you are going. And so Thomas says, we don't even know where you're going. So how can we possibly know the way? Well, let's give Thomas some credit, first of all. He's doing what most men refuse to do. And what is that? He's asking for directions, right? Men refuse to do that. But Thomas steps up and he says, we need direction. We need to know where you are going so that we can know the way. They want to follow Jesus wherever it is he is going, 
but they just don't know where that is or how to get there. In response, Jesus gives one of his I am statements. There are seven in John's gospel, eight if you include the one in chapter eight where he simply says, I am. But the other seven, he says, I am something. All of them point to something about who he is and what he is going to accomplish. So here it is a threefold statement. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I'm going to deal with all three of those, but I'm going to go a little bit out of order. So how do we know that Jesus is right? Because he is truth. He is the truth. Now, I realize that this doesn't go over well with many people today. We've known for several decades that the very idea of truth has been under attack, with the majority of people saying there simply is no such thing as truth or absolute truth. In our modern or postmodern society, there is no such thing as truth, or so we are told. But Jesus says otherwise. He says there is absolute truth, and he in fact is that. He is not just speaking truth. He embodies truth. He is truth. Notice how that's worded. He does not say, I am speaking truth, though that is true. He simply says, I am the truth. He is claiming to embody truth, something that no one else can say. Now, we sometimes loudly proclaim that we are telling the truth, especially as children, when perhaps in the past we have lied or our parents have had reason to not trust what we are saying. And so we say, I'm telling you, I'm telling the truth. But that is not what Jesus says, though he is indeed telling the truth. He says, I am truth. I am truth incarnate. And as a result, he cannot be lying, or once again, salvation itself is not accomplished. Because if he is not the truth, then he too is a sinner in need of salvation, and he cannot pay the penalty for our sins. He must die for his own. And so the first answer we see for the reason that there are no other options is a parent favorite. I told you so. But now it's not coming from a parent. It's coming from Jesus. He says, I told you so. I told you that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, frankly, that ought to be enough. We ought to be able to close our Bibles at this point, have a word of prayer, and move along to Sunday school. Because if Jesus said, I'm the only way, and we claim to be followers of Jesus, then whether we like it or not, or fully understand the implications of what it means, we at least acknowledge that he did say it, and therefore it must be true, and we then are to accept it regardless. But of course, you know I'm not going to let you out this early. So I do have three other reasons that I want to share with you. The second reason there are no other options is because Jesus is unique. Now, we use that word unique a little too loosely in our day, and as a result, we sometimes lose its meaning. We say that things are unique when in truth, they are really not unique. We talk about having a unique experience as if we've just had an experience that no one else in the history of humanity has ever experienced. There's really very few unique experiences. Or some of you ladies may go in search of a unique antique 
or a unique gift to give to that special person. And you think you found it, as if there again, there is no other gift just like this in all of the world. I've actually been on church websites where the claim is made that if you come to this church, you will hear unique preaching or communication from whoever that pastor is. Now, I know Jesus, or it was said of Jesus, that no one ever spoke like he did. But I don't think we ought to be saying that about other people. So the word unique, I'm using it in its strictest definition this morning. The word unique means one of a kind, unlike anything else. And that does indeed apply to Jesus. He is unlike anyone else. He is truly one of a kind. We did a sermon in this series on the fact that Jesus is the God-man. Truly God, truly man. Fully God, fully man. 100% God, 100% man. And again, we acknowledge that we have a hard time figuring out how that can work, but it is what the Bible teaches. And there is certainly no one else who can make that claim, and therefore Jesus is unique. We talked about the sinless life of Jesus. How again, because he is the only one to perfectly keep the law, who committed no sins in thought or in action, and as a result, once again, he is unique. There is no one else who has ever been sinless. And that is why Jesus is not just a good teacher. There have been a lot of good teachers through the years. That is why Jesus is not just a great example. There are other great examples of how to live a moral life. That is why Jesus is not just a prophet. Christianity has multiple prophets, and the other religions of the world also have their prophets. Jesus is unique because he's the only son of the only God. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, a mediator being the route, the way, and therefore it is Jesus Christ. If you know anything about the Bible, you know it is monotheistic. That is one God. Theistic, God, mono, one meaning there is only one God. So Christianity does not claim that we have one God among many. Polytheism is many gods. We believe there is one God. And we, we believe that one God is not greater than all other gods. He is the only God. So all other gods do not, in fact, exist. They are idols or the mere inventions of men. And this one God has one son, and that son is Jesus. You know the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. And so we, if we were to read further in our text in John 14, we would hear Jesus claiming equality with God the Father. Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, have you been with me so long that you can't see the Father? He and I are one. We are one in the same. And that's why he says, from now on, you've seen him. No one else can make that kind of claim. We'll look a little bit further next week at this as we conclude this series by looking at the Trinity. But the unique person of Jesus Christ allows him to say, I am the way. 
Again, did you hear that closely? He did not say, I am a way. He's not talking about being one path to God among other paths of God. He uses the article, the. He could have left that out and said, I am a way. There's actually no word in the Greek language for a. It's implied when you don't have an article. But in this text, the article is in front of all three of those nouns. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And if that's not enough for you, that little grammar exercise, then the next phrase makes it abundantly clear. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, as we've already said, there is only one God, and he is God the Father. And there is only one Son, and he is God the Son. And that Son says no one is going to have a relationship with the Father unless they come through me. Therefore, there are no other options. There are no other options because Jesus is right. He's the truth. There are no other options because Jesus is unique. He is the way. And there are no other options, thirdly, because Jesus is sufficient. We've already said that one of the reasons we like options or choices is is because we want to be in charge. But I think another reason we want options is because we're never completely satisfied. We think that something else might just be a little better. Some other option might more fully satisfy us. I mean, I like a good cold Coca-Cola, but maybe if I add something else to it, it would be even better, which by the way is how Sonic can have over one million choices of drinks because you can combine all of those various things. But with Jesus, there is no need nor possibility of improvement. He has provided a grace-based means of salvation which no one else can offer and no one else can improve upon, which is why he can say, not only I am the way and the truth, but I am the life. And there is life in no one else. Now, by life, of course, he does not mean physical life. We have physical life through birth, whether we know Jesus or not. So he's not talking about mere existence. There are plenty of people who have physical life who are just existing from one day to the next, but Jesus offers much more than that. His promise is of abundant life, which does not mean wealth and fame. It means fulfillment, a relationship with him. That's what you were created to have. You may not understand that, but you were created in the image of God to have a relationship with God that would bring you fulfillment and abundant life. Abundant life, again, as defined by the Bible. And you are not complete without that because you are not fulfilling the purpose for which you are made. And so it is only through this salvation that we can possibly experience the fullness of what we were created to be. Now, again, that doesn't mean that every day is going to be happy. It doesn't even mean that every day is going to be hashtag blessed. There's going to be difficult days. But it does mean that we will never find fulfillment, we will never find true life apart from Jesus Christ. And of course, he's also talking not just about abundant life, but he's talking about eternal life, which is the context of the scripture we are looking at this morning. The promise of providing or preparing a place and then returning to take us there. 
And as we saw in our life group last week, we are promised eternity with Christ through his resurrection. And because of his resurrection, then we have the promise of our own resurrection. So that our hope in Christ is not just in this life. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians says, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Our hope goes beyond this life, and it includes eternal life, the greater life to come. Listen to the words of Peter in one of his sermons in the book of Acts. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Once again, that's a pretty straightforward statement that in my mind settles the matter, whether we like it or not. There is no other name. There is salvation in no one else. It is only in the name of Jesus by which we can be saved. The only right way to God, as we saw last week, is through faith in Christ. Not just faith in whatever. Not just sincerity of faith, that as long as you're sincere, you're okay. But specifically, faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. This is the only thing that qualifies to provide salvation. He is the only one who has sacrificed so that we might be saved. He is the only one who can truly offer it to us. Again, as we saw last week, we certainly cannot earn it on our own, and none of us deserve it. So salvation in Him is the only option available. And in finding that in Him, He gives both abundant and eternal life, as He said elsewhere, so there is no need for anyone or anything else. Jesus is sufficient. And thus, there are no other options. I have one more reason I want to give you. And before I give you this reason, I want to acknowledge that it's going to sound a bit odd. In fact, you might even think this is going to be contradictory to what I've already said. But hear me out. The last reason I want to give this this morning for the fact that there are no other options is because Jesus is inclusive. And now you say, but wait a minute. Hasn't this whole sermon been based on the fact that Christianity is exclusive? That is, there's only one way to God? We've been talking all morning about the exclusivity of salvation in Christ, and now your last point is Jesus is inclusive? How can that be? Are you just trying to now speak out of both sides of your mouth, or maybe simply trying to soft sell a very hard topic to deal with at this point? Well, I hope and I trust that that is not what I'm doing, but instead I'm trying to be fair and balanced. What I mean by saying that Jesus is inclusive is that he invites all. So the option is available to all. Even if there is only one option, the option is offered to all. We certainly know that in the New Testament there was this tremendous struggle that the early Christians fought very hard against and through much turmoil came to believe that the gospel was not just for the Jew, but the gospel was for the Gentile. I mean, throughout the New Testament, we see this struggle. It's in Acts, it's in Galatians, it's in numerous places where ultimately they come to the conclusion, sometimes, as in Peter's case, through visions from God. Peter, do not call unclean what I call clean. Sometimes it's through seeing the Holy Spirit poured out on Gentiles just like he was poured out on Jews. And so they ultimately come to this conclusion in the New Testament that there are no barriers. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. And on and on the list goes because the gospel is to be for all. Jesus said, come to me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's inviting anybody and everybody to come. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, he acknowledged that the gate is narrow and the way hard that leads to life. And so he says, relatively speaking, there are few who find it. This narrow gate and this hard road, therefore, has few people on it. But on the other hand, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And as a result, many take that path. Sadly and unbiblically, we think the opposite. I think we've forgotten that text of Scripture because our general belief is that the vast majority of people are going to heaven. With a few exceptions of notoriously wicked people, everybody else is somehow going to wind up in heaven. Never mind that Jesus said the gate is narrow and the way hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. But my point here is simply that the invitation is open to all. Now, I know that one of the troubling questions in the Christian faith is about those who have never heard. What about those who have grown up under another religion, who have been taught something else entirely all of their lives and have never had the opportunity, nor the experience, nor the hearing of the fact that Jesus is the Savior, the path to God? Doesn't that seem unfair? And I'm willing to acknowledge that indeed it does seem unfair. I'm not going to argue with you on that point. But what I will say is this. The truth is nothing is fair about salvation. None of us deserve it. And for any of us to have a relationship with God through the sacrifice of Christ is inherently unfair. But on the other hand, that's why we are so invested in missions. Because we want people to hear and we want the invitation to go out so that more can come to Christ. Because the more that hear the invitation, the more who have an opportunity to respond to that invitation. But again, the truth is abundantly clear in Scripture that the offer of salvation is available to all. Whosoever will is a recurring theme. So while I too struggle with those who have never heard, you are not among that number. You have heard, either today or probably countless other times before today. You have heard that there is a Savior. You've heard about all that he did to provide you a means of salvation. And you've heard, even as I'm telling you this morning, that the invitation is open to anyone. That your sins are not too great for you to be saved. That you are not too far away from God for you to be saved. That there is not something you've done in your past that negates your opportunity of salvation. None of that is true. The invitation is open to all this morning. When we close our service in just a few moments, we traditionally close with what we call an invitation. Some of you, perhaps, who have not been raised in the Baptist tradition may not understand what that is, but it really is what the Word says. We are inviting you to respond to the message that you've heard. Now, that response can be multiple things. It can be a response of salvation. It can be a response of, I know I'm saved, but I need to be baptized. Or it can be a response to join the church. Frankly, it can be many other responses of what God's been doing in your life. But the response to salvation is something that you can do right there in your seat. When we sing in just a few moments, you can, you can simply pray and cry out to God. God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And you need to be saved. You can hang around afterwards and me or any of the other ministers would be happy to talk to you about what it means to, by faith, trust in Christ. 
Or you can come forward in just a moment and speak to me as I stand at the head of this middle aisle here. That's why we have this time in our service, so that you can respond. There's another story in John's gospel. This is found in the sixth chapter. We won't turn there, but I want you to know it so we can highlight it. It's immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. Following that miracle, Jesus began to teach them. In fact, it's another one of the I am statements in that text. There he says, I am the bread of life. And he's trying to show them that that he is the source of their, their need, that he's the one they need to go to, not the bread that he's just provided, not the meal that he's just miraculously given them, but what they need is him. And some of the people begin grumbling, and they say, this is a, this is a hard statement. And after further talk, the Bible says, and many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, the word disciple there does not mean the 12. The word disciple is used in multiple ways in Scripture. Sometimes it refers to the 12. Sometimes it's a more general term to refer to anybody who's following Jesus. So there it refers to the more general way. And many of his disciples, his followers, turned back and no longer followed him because they did not like the hard things that he had to say. And so then Jesus turns to the 12, and he asks them the question, are you going to leave also? And Peter, as you know, often the spokesperson for the group, once again, speaks up and delivers one of his masterful statements. Sometimes Peter puts his foot in his mouth, but sometimes he says some great things. And this is another one in John 6 of his great statements. Jesus says, are you going to leave also? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter says, there's nowhere else to go. You are the only one that can provide salvation. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And therefore, we must turn to him. Are there options? Well, in one sense, yes. I'm going to give you your options. You can turn in faith to Jesus, or you can deny all of that and rebel against him. Those are your options. But I'm telling you, you're not going to find salvation in anyone else because there is salvation in no other name under heaven except for Jesus Christ and him alone. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the salvation that you've provided through your only son, Jesus Christ. And while the world says that that's arrogant and bigoted and hateful, those are not my words, those are yours. And you have lovingly provided that way for all who will come. And so I pray today that many would come. And that we would share that message in a loving manner with those whom we know. Whether here or around the world. Not in arrogance, but in love. That there is a way to be made right with God. There is a way to have life. And that way is through Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you'd have your way in this time of invitation as we respond to your Spirit's leading. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.